So today, Take Fountain continues its exploration of the life and genius of Richard Pryor. We are very, very lucky, Bill, today. To have our first guest. Yeah, there you go. We've, we've, we've never had a guest. We're not sure how we'll handle this. Well, that's right. I mean, I'll be fine. Well, I know Jennifer, and she is smart and tough, <laughs> and I think both of us are in trouble. She, she's, she's the one, if, if you've ever seen, a, uh, there are a couple of really good uh, Richard Pryor documentaries out there, and she was heavily involved in, I think, in at least one of them. I think she produced them. Yeah, and, and, uh, and she's a major voice in them. She's, she is the, the primary voice. You're, all, you're in them too, but she's really in them. Yes. And so she is the uh, expert because she was married to him twice. She was married to him twice. And, and Jennifer, I got to say, she is a person I have a huge amount of respect for. Richard was not easy uh, duty, and she not only loved him, she helped him through some of the most critical phases of his life. We're about to learn a lot more about that. Because in just a moment, we're going to bring you Jennifer Lee Pryor, widow of Richard Pryor. We are honored today to have Jennifer Lee Pryor, one of my favorite humans and the two times wife of the remarkable and uh, still uh, triumphant Richard Pryor, the funniest man in the world, but separate and apart from that, Mr. Pryor also had uh, a really uncanny understanding of the culture and who people are and where things were going. He was, by turns, uh, a great friend of mine and a difficult uh, partner in the making of many films. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer, yes, um, sir. you look great. So Thanks. how did you and Richard meet? Okay, uh, I actually love this story, and I'm I'm happy you asked. I was um, an actress getting little parts here and there in Hollywood, um, and I was knocking around Texas with a friend of mine that summer, summer of '77, 1977, and uh, got back into singing and doing. You know, uh, she and I were were singing on the road at certain clubs in and around Austin, particularly. Right. And um, got back into um, Los Angeles, pulled into Lucy Saroyan's driveway, dusty and broke, and said, oh, I need a gig. I, you know, back from Texas. And she said, you know, I'm decorating Richard's house. I'm working with him on some other projects. She was actually working with him on the NBC Variety Show, too, as a consultant. And she said, I need someone to help me at the house, if, you, if you'd be willing. I'm good. I needed something. So I started being her Sioux decorator, as it were. Right. And uh, that's how I met him. And I met him August 22nd, 1977. Boom. Big date <laughs> in my life. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. And there was an artist friend of his there named Prophet. And um, if, if you remember the old SX 70, 70s um, Polaroids, um, he took a picture of Richard and me that day. And you can see that I look as if I, you know, swallowed the canary. Um, and I really adored him the second I met him. Yeah. And yeah. it was his vulnerability that jumped off the page, so to speak. Yeah. It was just, he was so tender and, and, and fragile to me um, and, and open and just sweet and endearing immediately. So I, I worked uh, under Lucy's uh, tutelage, so to speak, um, and was at the house every day. And every day there were there was another woman coming out of his bedroom. I would sit at the dining room table with my notebooks and, and work that had to be accomplished for that day. And there would be a, another woman coming out, a one night stand mm -hmm. coming out with him. Oh, hello, you know, goodbye. <laughs> um, and, and he and I just started talking. Um, you remember the house, Tom, it was in Northridge and we would go to the atrium. He would right. ask me to come upstairs and we would sit and we would talk about movies. He talked about Frank Capra and how much he loved him. And um, a family dream came out of that actually. And uh, that conversation and um, those conversations. And he, he was, uh, I was smitten and we just talked for months and uh, while I worked there and uh, Lucy came and went, there was a, a drama one night with her which involved cocaine and a gun. 
Okay. Uh, if you'd like, if you'd like me to go into it, I can. We can save it for another time if you'd like. Um, I, we will talk about cocaine and guns in just a minute. So. Okay. Okay. That's basically how I met him. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful story, and what I love about that, of course, is that Richard truly loved you. I mean, as you yeah. remember, Richard and I had dinner together at Musos maybe every twice a month at least for years right. and years and years, and and we would talk like guys talk right. and Richard would talk about girls and then separately in a whole nother category, he'd talk about you Aww. because you're the person that he was in love with, you know, and you're the person who loved him and he knew that and he knew the rest of it was very, very, shall we say sketchy. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about drugs. Um, Richard, when I first met him, which was some years before that, Right. He was doing a 20-minute opening gig for cash at a jazz club in the valley, somewhere around Van Nuys Boulevard. I don't know. I don't remember exactly where. And the guy who was the headliner was a saxophone player. And Richard did, you know, he'd been, he had a, the gig lasted, I think, five days or something. And they mm -hmm. were just giving him cash. And he was uh, high, to put it mildly. Yeah. Uh, he did, however, open that show memorably. To me, Jen, I know you'll appreciate this. He looked at this very small audience in this smoky, crowded club, and he looked at him for another beat, and he just said, motherfucker, motherfucker, motherfucker. <laughs> and <laughs> then he had everyone's attention. Yeah. Um, tell I me about it. how you dealt with Richard's inconsistent, periodic, sometimes very destructive, sometimes very straight uh, relationship to drugs. You know, the, the, the reality is that um, before Freebase came into his life, he actually regulated the drug, the snorting of cocaine, right? right. He was, he was um, and, and what, what is um, kind of surprises most people uh, is when I tell them he was rather dissonant. For instance, when he did, um, uh, when he was working on woodshedding for a lot where it became live in concert, he would um, he would take a nap in the afternoon. He would um, really knew how to moderate and regulate himself. And yes, he did drugs. He snorted cocaine, but it he he would regulate himself. So his priority was the work. Right. And so he kept that in check. Yeah. Um, and now, and how did I handle that? Well, you know, frankly, I snorted with him. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I couldn't keep up, you know. Um, I felt that I had a, um, a, a mission, a position, if you will, in our relationship, which was to keep the ship rather steady. So I would, uh, I did what, what you can call recreational. Right. Um, but I always knew how to cut it off and um, stop. Um, Richard didn't necessarily have that line in the sand, as it were. Um, however, again, I want to reiterate that he, he always kept it in check right. until that dreaded pipe came into his life. Right. And then it was, you know, as you know, uh, out of control. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, um, Bill, I had the experience of going with Richard. He would call me sometimes 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And he'd say, I'm going to go on at midnight at the comedy store, you yeah. know, and I'd ask him whenever he was working on new material to let me know, because I love to understand where he was going and what about it. And sometimes those things became movies and sometimes pieces of a television show and sometimes documentaries about him and all kinds of stuff. The thing about it, Jennifer, I'd love you to talk about this. What always amazed me is as I'd look around the room and then in the back, with her head stuck around a corner would be Eddie Murphy and Whoopi and this one and that one. Every comedian of color and Robin Williams and Lily Tomlin and the whole gang, if Richard was going to do five minutes of new material at the comedy, comedy club at midnight on a Wednesday, they would all be there. This is true. They would watch the master at work. I mean, they knew that Richard worked without a net right and by that i mean that he would simply get up there and you know i mean most comics you know a try out new material certainly in front of um audiences usually small um and they 
kind of handpicked them. But Richard um, really took chances and risks that I think um, was was really an example to other to other comics. Right. And and he on stage, and I know you know this, Tom, and remember it quite well, sometimes would say, this isn't working. I, I don't know, I'm not funny. I can't, I don't feel it tonight, what, whatever's gonna. In fact, he did that the first night of uh, Live on Sunset. That right. shot yeah. was supposed to be a two night shoot. And he walked off stage because he really felt it wasn't working, you know, but he was so vulnerable on stage and honest about where he was and, and authentic. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I always wanted to know: Did he run things by you? My comedian friends, they'll say, "They'll come. I'm about to do a gig tonight." They'll come. Is this funny? Did he do that with you? Oh, yes, and and not only that, but um, he took a few bits that uh, came from me. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. So you gave him material. You gave him uh, some material. Absolutely. Great. In fact, in fact, sometimes I would say to him, Richard, what are we fighting about? Or you just need no material right now? It right. Is, is this you looking for new, you know, new grist for the mill, so to speak? But um, uh, one one time in particular, um, we had made love, and he got out of bed and he was strutting like a peacock, and saying, "I just, you know, I that was fantastic." I said, "Yeah, Richard, you just killed the pussy, didn't you? You just killed." <laughs> and he goes, "Yeah, I'm the pussy murderer. That's what I am. I'm the pussy ma macho macho man." And he started that, and that became a routine. Right. Right. Uh, you and know. he he would impersonate uh, white people, you know. And yes. it's one of one of the funniest things I've, I feel is that when he impersonate white, does did you ever feel he was impersonating you? Oh, many times. Yeah. But by the way, speaking of th those impersonations, I think every comic, black and white, have done the white the white man voice. Oh yeah, that's been stolen. Yeah. I mean that's been stolen so many times. By the way, you know, uh, Robin Williams. Chappelle does that. I whenever time every time I see Dave Chappelle do that, I think that's Richards. Yeah, the the origin of that, um, because that was that came totally out of Richards' brilliance. Sure. Uh, yeah. Oh no, he did um, he did the the female voice in live in concert. Um, right. And, you know, which to me was was pejorative. I didn't appreciate that, <laughs> but um, it, it was kind of without strength and uh, a little too weak for me. But uh, but nevertheless, he, he but he got he, a laugh. Yeah, he did. It worked. Yeah. It worked. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. So we'd be in a meeting. We'd be walking down a street. We'd be going to the commissary at the studio, whatever. And I realized he had watched somebody do something, and yeah. absorbed it. Yeah. And so one of the things I admired hugely about Richard is that he was such a cultural sponge. He saw, he saw so much. He was such an observer. Let's talk a little bit, Jennifer, about people in Richard's lives other than you. Um, it seemed to me that I'd never run into a star with a more uh, unusual group of hanger-ons, followers, exploiters, manipulators, mm -hmm. and a thousand other things. What was your take on that? And would you also talk about, while we're talking about that, I was on many occasions at the house when grandma or some other relative was there. So can you fill us in yeah. on that? Yeah, you know, um, that, that was difficult, Tom, that, that aspect and that, that part of Richard's life and um, his community, if you will, of people around him. And I, you know, I, I don't think it's strange. I think every celebrity has got those that entourage, you know, difficult entourage business around them. Richard uh, did collect um, a little more than usual, perhaps. Yeah. Um, you know, he was not without a manipulative side, Richard. Right. Um, and you know, as celebrities are, you know, I mean, they're not celebrities, you know, out of the blue. They 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 have a way of, you know, elevating themselves. And I think that this entourage, um, you know, and, and David Banks, I, I loved, however, I have to say, he was my favorite friend of Richard's. Yeah, mine and too. He was, he was, yeah, was he? Uh, yeah, yeah. He was just, he was genuine. There was something very genuine about about yeah. uh, David Banks. Paul Mooney, my least favorite. Uh, <laughs> count me, and, count me number two yeah, on that list. And, yeah. I'm very outspoken and honest about that. Uh, Paul was uh, not only uh, not a good influence on Richard, but um, 
you know, I've seen him empty the room at the comedy store. I know you have as well, mm. Tom. Yes. Um, Mitzi Barton from the comedy store over 25 times. I, th I think that Richard had, you know, the better angels and the not so better angels. And right. I think Paul was on the, the shoulder of the not so better angels. Yeah, I you yeah, you can't get me yeah. to say a lot of good things about Paul because I saw no. too much ugly uh, manipulative stuff. And, and uh, by the way, and, and let me set the record straight here. You know, he he worked on NBC Variety Show. He was one of the writers on JoJo Dancer, and he was one of uh, several uh, writer helpers on Live on uh, Sunset. Um, uh, but my God, the credit that every every year I had comments say to me, "Would you please set the record straight, Jennifer?" You know, Paul Mooney didn't write Richard Pryor's material. Yeah. It was not possible. Richard never, Pryor never wrote. got close to that experience because yeah. I saw too much of Richard, and I was there when Richard did write his material and I saw you guys interact. Yeah, I mean, I took notes on the, when he, after we shot the car, uh, yeah. on New Year's Eve, 1978, and um, we went off to Hana and that's when he and I got together and divorced, he divorced Deborah, obviously, and uh, she was in the car and he did a 180 going home to Northridge one night on after we'd been at the Daisy and had a nice evening. And where are we going? Oh, we're, you'll see pulled into the comedy store parking lot, took me by the hand, sat me down at a table and got on stage and started talking about candle wax on the floor. Right. And, and I started <laughs> taking, yeah, and I started taking notes and that ultimately became live in concert. Right. Um, he's, he would go every night, we'd go every night, I'd sit in the back, I'd take notes and the next morning we'd sit by the pool which you knew well, Tom, at, at the house in Northridge, right. go over his notes. He threw out what didn't work, keep what did work, and um, and go to again go to the store that night. Go to the store. Worked very hard. Yeah. And and again, you know, that's the part of uh, people don't understand that Richard actually was very disciplined about his work, and he held it in such high regard. In general, he did. There are a couple yeah. of couple of interesting snafus along the line there, yeah. but oh, yeah. in general, oh, yeah. not, he not did. Consistent. Exactly right. Exactly so, right. can you uh, leap over the fence with me about Richard's relationship with his grandmother? Oh yes. And see if wow. we can talk a little bit about that because I know that's fraught territory in many ways, but wow. uh, it's also has a big influence on his life. Yeah. Um, he, it, it was a complicated relationship indeed, um, because he was taken away from his mother. Um, and, and I don't believe that that ever healed, that wound ever healed. Right. Um, and she was the surrogate. She was the, the punisher. She was the nurturer. She was everything. And, and of course the provider, she ran the brothel um, in which Richard was raised and uh, where his mother, you know, serviced men. I mean, it's ugly to talk about, but it's the reality, it's the truth, it's how he grew up. Yeah. And um, she ran everything with an iron hand. She kept a, a straight razor in her bra. Mm. She, uh, nobody got out of hand, you know? She, she was the punisher, as I said, not only of him, but of everyone in the whorehouse. Yeah. So, you know, he witnessed that. And it, indeed, when uh, she would come to the house and stay uh, and be ensconced in the Northridge house for not a few days, not a week or so, but months at a time. I remember. Yeah. Yep. And, and as much as he loved her, I know he was torn because there you have an artist such as Richard who's growing, um, gaining fame, gaining celebrity uh, and, and growing as an artist who's trying to break away from anything that's holding him back. He's trying to elevate. And, and there, um, there is a reminder in Scott's in the house of his past so that whenever there was a schism or, you know, he, he's trying to leave it as it were, she would, you know, don't forget where you come from, son. Don't forget where you come from. Right. And well, how are you doing that? And and there was one night that that so sort of you know uh, profoundly um, uh, showed that, expressed that 
Marvin Gaye was at the house with his wife and another girlfriend. And um, we were all sitting at the dining room table and mama was in the kitchen cooking catfish. And we're at the dining room table um, uh, with cocaine and, and Stolichnaya and caviar. And that, <laughs> that right. was, that was on the menu. Yeah, hors d'oeuvres, right. And, <laughs> and she, she's in cooking the kitchen, cooking in the kitchen. And um, Richard said to me, uh, Jennifer, who at the table is a whore? Now, I never um, backed down from a challenge. Right. Um, and I certainly didn't back down from this. So I, I said, well, maybe she is and maybe she, it was not, it, it was not a good thing to have done on my part. Um, because it, it, uh, mama came in and he said, mama, what do you think? Who at this table? And she said, I think you're all a bunch of damn fools. And Richard at that point told me to take it back. And I did not. I said, well, you asked me, I answer. What am I supposed to do now? And he tossed a champagne bottle at my head, which landed with a good plunk at my, my head. And, um, mm -hmm. um, I left the table needless to say. But it, to me, demonstrated that entire episode to me demonstrated the pull and the push-pull that Richard had with grandmother right. and, and, and his allegiance to her and yeah. to where he came from and, you know, his being torn. My own experience torn. with her, Jen, was that she would hold court in the kitchen. Yeah. And um, there were a few wives, as you know, there have been a few wives in Richard's lives. Let me get that straight, by the way. Uh, what number were you from the first time? Okay, so um, there were six wives. There are five different five children by six women, um, not all of whom were wives. I didn't have any kids. Let's get that straight. I have dogs. And Richard thanked me for not having any kids. Yeah, I said, Richard, you have too many. Let's be honest. You know, these are too many. These are too many children here. You don't need. Uh, uh, one more. Um, so he had um, the father, the mother, sorry, the mother of Richard Jr. Right. And, and he was married to her. And then he had a child with Maxine. Right. Never married Maxine. Right. Child with her, Elizabeth. He married um, Deborah. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was Shelley after that. Shelley, right. Um, Shelley and married Shelley. Had reigned by Shelley. And uh, divorced Shelley and was with Deborah, married Deborah, no children. She was in the car. Right. She was that car he shot on New Year's, 78 New Year's Eve. And uh, after that, he married me. Right. And um, then after me, he married Flynn. Right. Had two kids, had one child by Flynn. He remarried Flynn when he had the heart attack in Australia. She oh. went down there and, you know, I'm going to fix you up and save you. And he remarried her. Okay. Had another kid by, by Richard at that point, two kids by Flynn, and then, and then remarried me. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you were with him at the end. You were, with, you were I was with him at the end. Yeah, I came back in 94. I was living in New York after he and I, after the first marriage was over, uh, I went back to New York and you know, to regroup. I wrote a book. I wanted to carry on with my life. And, um, and we always stayed in touch. Richard did recycle women. I was no exception. And yeah. so we, you know, I was still in madly in love with them. I mean, I, I never stopped loving Richard. I mean, he, how, how did it end? How did, did they all end the same way or was yours specific? No, no, you know, you know that's an interesting question too. I think Richard ended relations, uh, 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 got married sometimes to end relationships because he really didn't know how to navigate a relationship. He really couldn't handle stability, right? Every, every time you get things stable and organized, Richard would go, whoop, upset the app cart. Right. Um, it actually, we were married in August um, 81 and the first marriage, and um, we took our honeymoon the following January 82, and it we kind of shipwrecked on that honeymoon. Um, I left the boat, and um, he took, he well, actually, <laughs> I we had been in some conflict. He went on my honeymoon without me. 
on our honeymoon without me. <laughs> is, th- is this the one, there's one of the documentaries, which are all fantastic, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Uh, oh. One of the documentaries, somebody comes in and says, uh, Richard tells somebody, I just got married yesterday, I want a divorce. Is that you or is that somebody that, else? That was, that was me. Skip Brittingham came, was down uh, for our wedding. Yeah. And uh, on our wedding night, we had an argument. And the next morning, he went to Skip's, the hotel room at the Hana Hotel and said, Skip, I want a divorce. And, uh, and, you know, obviously we talked him off the ledge or Chris, Skip talked him off the ledge, whatever. And, um, uh, but, you know, Richard really had a hard time navigating relationships. He just did it. It was terrifying to him. Intimacy was terrifying. Well, well that's where I was, that's actually where I was going. Because I, I produced the yeah. Barbara Walters specials for many years. But, right. but I started in 88. I did it for 27 years. And then people say, what's your favorite Barbara Walters special? I say, I didn't produce it. It's the one with Richard Pryor, the first one with Richard Pryor, where he talks about intimacy, being scared sexually. You know this interview, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. This had to have some impact on your marriage, this whatever this issue with, I mean, he talks about intimacy as something terrifying. Well, you know, the truth is I might have had my own issues too. Yeah. Because why else would I pick um, such a complicated man, too, right? Right. Um, so I, therefore, will suggest to you and to myself that I understood it somehow. Right. I, you know, I mean, I came from a turbulent family, too. I, a very interesting family. Father was a successful lawyer. Mother was mentally ill. Uh, interesting, fabulous uh, woman but mentally ill so i grew up in a certain volatility and i knew how to navigate that yeah. i knew how to survive that right. I, I understood it and so you know i was already sort of equipped with 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 a certain um with certain skills about about these um tumultuous times that would exist in a household so and in my relationship and i just remind you jen that i witnessed grandma in the kitchen being unbelievably rude, hostile, and unkind to multiple wives oh, yeah. before you, you know, oh, yeah. and she didn't like anybody, and no. she was not putting up with it. And she then, liked Pam Greer. Yes, she liked Pam Greer, I, <laughs> and that's I, and by the way, so do I. I like Pam Greer. She's, yeah, I like Pam Greer. She's <laughs> lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so setting that aside, Richard would come in the kitchen after some poor hapless wife had been savaged by Grandma. Yeah. And he'd say, so, so what, what did you, and he'd start to stick up for her and grandma would just level him. And you would suddenly, he wouldn't be Richard Pryor at 40 anymore. He would be Richard Pryor at eight. Eight years old. That's you know? exactly right. That's again, that there was the, you, you know, to demonstrate the, the, the tear, the being torn between the child in the brothel at, as a kid yes. uh, growing up, and then this adult who's making it in the world and, and doing wonderful things. Yeah. And there she was to pull him back in and say, you remember yeah. who you are. Now, that's not unusual, by the way. I think in the African-American community, you are you are kind of required, if you make it, to bring everybody else along. Yes, right? I understand that. Yeah, right. and, and right. this is, yeah, and, and I kind of, I get that. But this was this relationship was particularly hard on Richard, and and you know she did things to me that were oh she sent a woman well I oh God yeah she sent <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, okay go ahead <laughs> oh Lord oh Lord well one night Richard and I had been up most of the night and we wanted to go to sleep and she kept calling us and um, I had hired a housekeeper a cook from uh, John Schlesinger, who was a friend right. of mine. Right. And um, her name was Barbara, and uh, African-American woman. And um, she kept calling us on the phone. And Richard said, please leave us alone. We were trying to go to sleep. And um, the, the phone rang again. And he said, Jennifer, tell them. Well, I told them again, and it was the grandmother. And um, she said, tell Richard there's a man out here with a stick. And I said, what does she mean? What's going on? Well, uh, <laughs> a few moments later, the door, bedroom door flew open and Barbara's there with a two by four and it's over my legs. Wow. She, this is how they met it out punishment in the whorehouse. Wow. 
And Barbara climbed on top of me, straddled both my arms, knees up, and she was a big woman, uh, both, and had her hands around my neck. And Richard got off the bed and watched this and finally decided that, oh my gosh, I think Jennifer needs help. <laughs> God, oh, Jen. I was choking, I was being strangled. And, <laughs> um, and you know, he got her off. And of course, that afternoon, I had some choice words for the grandmother because she had set all this in motion. Right. And I was basically told to leave the house until I apologized to the grandmother. Yeah, I don't doubt that. I really don't doubt that. Yeah, and I had to apologize because wild horses weren't going to drag me away. She was not going to banish me from Richard. She wasn't going to do that. So she and I, I believe, were locked in a true Shakespearean struggle for for Richard and for the love for um, for him. It was. it wasn't pretty. And then, of course, she died eventually. Yes. And um, that really devastated Richard. I know it did. On the other hand, a lot of us breathed a sigh of relief when that happened. You know? Yeah. You had a very loving relationship with him. And as I said, he spoke frequently about how much in love he was with you to me. Did the whorehouse spill over into your lives in a measurable way? Oh, I think so. I I definitely felt as if, uh, I mean, he called me one night in particular. He called, he was, you know, he was doing coke and he left the house and he called me from a horror house. All right. And ostensibly and said, um, I'm telling so-and-so how much I love you. And, you know, how sometimes I just can't handle it. And this is the deepest relationship I've ever had. And I don't know what to do. And, and I said, well, you know, baby, can you come home and talk to me about it? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, there were definite, you know, and also, Tom, and I know you remember this, too, that with enough booze and cocaine, he, he would acquire this bravado and put right. on that that cloak of the sort of the badass, the black man, and um, and become this different person, this different persona would therefore, you know, invade him where, where you know, it, it would, uh, it's like, well, who, who are you? Who's this person yeah, yeah. <laughs> sitting in front of me? And, you know, he saw that. He's imitating something that he saw. Yeah, no, no, it's all true. And lots of those characters, I think, of his actually emerged from the childhood. Can you come with us now to the, uh, to the fire? Let's oh, go God. to the explosion and the few days around that. Um, oh, gosh, terrible. What was your... How did this occur to you? Okay, so the first time Richard ever did freebase, I remember walking into the house and smelling fire. This right. is really this is really bizarre. And I walked, I followed the smell, and it was in the bedroom. He had lit his mattress on fire accidentally on purpose. I don't know. Ended up having to drag it into the bathroom uh, bathtub and put this fire on. Um, you know, I don't know if Richard was uh, secretly an arsonist or what, but how did this happen, Richard? <clears throat> oh, I'm lighting the pipe, and his drug dealer, mm. Bert, had just turned him on to this thing. Well, it was, you know, needless to say, not a good, th- not a good time. This right. began a very bad period, and um, he had just finished making, uh, shooting, um, uh, Family Dream. Right. Uh, in Washington, and he and I were having a difficult period. He was cheating on me, and I, um, yeah, it was not a good period. And so he began this this pipe smoking, smoking this shit, and uh, he became addicted. We we took a trip to Hawaii at Christmas time, trying to get him off it, um, but he was he was pretty addicted. I moved out on February of that year because February 1980, because the pipe had basically moved in. And I wasn't gonna hang with that. I did it with him for a few times and it was to me horrible. It obliterated the mind, the body, it was, and 
Richard was, it, 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 as I said, it had moved into the house. And um, there was no, uh, so I, I, and he was shooting at this time now, stir crazy. Right. And he went out to Tucson to make it. <clears throat> and I joined him up there for a few days and um, some really scary times up there. Mm. He he was uh, getting cocaine and cooking it with Rashawn as his helper. Right. Um, and, um, it, you know, there were people, he, it was Sidney Poitier and Hannah Weinstein and Jean, and they all had places down in town, in Tucson, in the village. Right. And Richard wanted this rental house in the mountains, which was already kind of creepy, right? And there were people who were watching him and I believe they were drug dealers. I could, I could, you know, sometimes at night I would say, Richard, somebody's outside. He would say, don't worry about it. And he would, you know, cock this shotgun and, and just get ready if we need, I mean, it was scary. Richard was really gonzo on this drug. And um, so uh, eventually I, I had, as I said, moved out. And um, back in Los Angeles, he was really having a spotty time shooting this. And um, he walked off the set. Hannah called me and said, can you get him to come back, Jennifer? We're doing some reshoots. And right. I went out to the house and he said, and this is now uh, on June 9th, 1980, the fire. He said to me, um, you know, Jennifer, you better leave or it's going to happen to you too. And he had been, you know, there was some, as I said, bad times between us, but um, he frightened me. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, if you don't leave, it's going to happen to you too. And Richard never made an idle threat, never made an idle threat. Mm -hmm. So I uh, was able to get out of that room, but kind of by the skin of my teeth. And um, I went to the kitchen. This is after a night, by the way, I, I, I need to backtrack. I'd spent the night with him and woke up in the morning that he was going through a mound of coke like this. Wow. And, and yeah, and that's when, you know, it was just, it was out of control. I, by the time I got to the kitchen, I said to Aunt Dee and um, a couple of hangers on from Peoria who he had brought out. Yes. Right. Um, there's going to be trouble. Something's going to happen. He's making threats. And they basically said, get out of here, you silly white girl. Mm -hmm. So I got in my car. I drove back to, at that time, I had an apartment in Beverly Hills. And I called Jim Brown. And I said, Jim, Richard is in trouble. Do something. And I had talked to Jim previously about trying to get Richard into rehab mm -hmm. to no avail. Richard wasn't listening to anybody. Richard was, you know, allowed to self-destruct, basically. Right. And um, so I hung up with Jim and I called the house and uh, Auntie answered. And the next thing I know, she drops the phone and I hear screams. Right. This is about 30 minutes after I left. Right. Those days you could get to Northridge to Beverly Hills in Lickety Split. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but he had lit himself on fire and uh, he poured 180 proof rum over himself and torched himself. Right. Um, I hightailed it out to the hospital. I had heard he, he, they got him to Presbyterian Valley Press. Right. And um, I went in and I told the doctors, I said, look at, he's full of booze and full of drugs. Be careful, you don't overdose him, whatever they were gonna give him for pain. Right. And they transferred him to Sherman Oaks. The, the, the family was there screaming at me, you know, don't talk to the police, Jennifer, don't talk to doctors, what are you saying? You know, at all costs, they were trying to protect still. And you know the rest of this, you know, you're you're part of the story now. But, um, and then we went to, um, he was taken to Sherman Oaks. Right, and, to the burn center, Dr. Grossman, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And It was a suicide attempt. Um, I mean, pure yeah. and simple. He yeah. couldn't, he couldn't get it. He didn't know how to stop. Right. He did not know how to stop the drug. So, right. Self-immolation seemed to be an answer. And I don't want to go, I don't want to dwell on this particularly because it's been covered to death. Yeah. I just wanted to get your personal take. And, you know, it was a horrible time for you, I know. And, and for a lot of us who cared about Richard, it was yeah. a very difficult time. And the recovery was, took very long time. You know, it was not a quick recovery from this. And, and it probably wasn't complete, at least from my point of view. 
I agree. Uh, when when did you start arm arm wrestling multiple sclerosis? How did that? When did that happen? So um, I was now living. So so after the fire, that's 1980. Richard and I got back together and remarried in 1981. Right, I remember. And so so honeymoon gone south a subsequent divorce that long story uh i moved back to new york and um as i said we you know kept in touch through that decade and in 1989 he came to new york to shoot see no evil right and stayed at the plaza today and asked me for some help he said you know you can run lines with me you can kind of you know keep me on the straight and narrow here and i said okay whatever the straight and narrow meant um it could have different meanings yes. at different times um and one day sure enough he comes out of the bathroom of his suite and i see blood trickling down his arm and i said what what are you doing and he said uh it's bunk jennifer don't worry about it i'm shooting up with bunk whatever bunk is yeah um yeah. he was um and i said why are you walking like an old man this is 1989. Right. And he, Jennifer, I was diagnosed with MS. That's why I'm walking this way, because his he was kind of silted and stiff. Right. And um, and you know, the film wrapped, and and he was, you know, seeing another girl he met on Madison. I told him, <laughs> I told him take a, <laughs> I told him take a walk up Madison Avenue. It's a beautiful day. You're so clingy. Take a take a walk. And he, of course, showed me, and he met a girl, and the rest is history. Small amount of history there, but, uh, and so I stayed in New York. He went back to Los Angeles. Um, in ninety, the summer, the spring of '94, he was in New York uh, at a tribute um, at the Apollo, and he was right. at the Helmsley Palace. And I, my apartment was a couple blocks down, 50th and First, and I went and visited him, and there were you know, water glasses like that full of vodka and pills everywhere. And he was killing himself again. And yeah. this is spring of 94. I said, what are you doing? And there was Deborah asking me to go get the white woman price for the diamond ring at the jeweler in the lobby. And hey, and all, and all this chaos was around him again. All the hangers on, all the ex-wives and girlfriends, every Oh, God. I said, Richard, what? what? What's going on? He said, my life is... I'm in trouble. My life's going down the, my business, my life, everything's going down the tubes again. And uh, I need help. So I said, well, I don't know, man, this is a big, this is a heavy lift. So I took a couple of trips back uh, to California to see what was going on. Right. And uh, to kind of assess the situation. Right. And it wasn't pretty, Tom. No, I bet. The locusts had descended. Yes. And it, you know, I talked to my father, who was still alive at the time, who's a smart lawyer, and he said, look, if you go back there, you have to protect yourself. Right. You know, you, you just, you know, you can't move in with him. You have to rent a house. You just have to be smart. And so I eventually I drove cross country with my two dogs and a friend. Right. Summer of 94, I arrived. Um, he had, was in a big rental on Havenhurst, not far from here, up from the Jackson compound. And... Um, just to keep that roof over his head and and the cook um and the helpers and everybody the nut was monthly was ridiculous he was hemorrhaging money of course and um so i knew the first thing i had to do was close the bank of prior right and um try to um uh, really get his 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 ip and his life in some sort of um organized you know, organize right. it and, and, and protect it. And I was threatened. I had my life threatened. I had to get restraining orders on one of the wives. I, it was really a, a big deal. Yeah. Uh, the maid, one of the maids threatened me. She said, I know people who will have you killed. Mm -hmm. And I said, I bet you do nine one one. Guess what just happened to me. And, um, so there was uh, quite a mess. Yes. I got him out of that ridiculous, um, you know, hemorrhaging of uh, the, 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 the roof over his head. And that was ridiculous. We uh, got him into a home. We started to, to stop the hemorrhaging of money, to rehabilitate him physically and to rehabilitate his business. Right. And, and his uh, legacy, his IP. I had to initiate lawsuits. People were selling shit that wasn't nailed down. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. People smarter than me, Tom, and I won't name names, some of whom have passed on, some of whom are still quite vital in the business, um, were not protecting Richard. Oh, I know that. I know that. And you know, you know. Yeah. And um, and and to whom he was paying big bucks. Yes, big bucks not to protect him. And remember the whole, you know, the mugging that he received at the hands of David Franklin, who just yeah. stole everything in sight. Um, and, you sued him. Oh, I know you did. Hello, you may. Well, I don't. Richard, yeah, Richard. There was a lawsuit, and you know what Richard wanted more than ever, more than that, a million dollars, which David stole. He wanted a letter of apology. Right, right. Which he got. Yes, I'm sure he, he got, got it. Yeah. yeah. Did he Did he get yeah. the Rolls Royce back? That's what I wanted. Uh, uh, no, no, no. The Ferrari, the Rolls, you know, everything was, you know, and that was a business manager. Again, I won't name names, but um, apparently yeah. there were a lot of lawsuits levied against that business manager uh, before he passed. Um, but um, it was, it was, let me just say this. People who were supposed to be, smarter than me we're not watching the farm we're not protecting richard right and um i had to learn quick fast and in a hurry yeah. oh my gosh what what the heck and yeah. uh, i gotta tell you it's the thing i'm most proud of my yeah. sense of loyalty for him to protect him um in all ways so that he was living out his life with dignity and love and and great care we took wonderful care of him um, you know, the best doctors and, and rehabilitated him, uh, his, in all aspects, the best we could. Um, the MS was progressive, not, not remitting, but progressive. Yes. And, um, you know, he, li he lived another 11 years. I know and, he did. And, and Jennifer, yeah. I, you may remember, I visited you guys a few times yeah. in the house up the hill, yeah. especially as Richard's ability to speak declined. Yeah. And I felt like once he couldn't talk, I, I in my own bizarre imagination, once he couldn't talk, I thought maybe people are not going to go see him because mm -hmm. he can't talk. But I know Richard and I know that the ability to talk did not shut off his ability to feel and understand and communicate. That's right. And you were genius when I would go there because you would stand next to him and give him prompts by touching him on the shoulder or saying something out loud that he could hear to remind yeah. him. And he would then use facial expressions to communicate the entire story. Yeah. It was kind of astonishing. You were really uh, deeply loyal to him, Jennifer. And I, I can't tell you how much anybody who cared about Richard appreciated that. Uh, thank you for saying that. I, I, oh. I, I appreciate that acknowledgement. I do. I do. Those, those who understand, um, and, and you are one who really understands the, the profound need of someone to be there for him in yes, those days. Yes, he desperately because, needed it. Yeah, Bill, he really needed we, it. We're going to run out of time here in a little bit, okay. Jennifer. And But before we go, Bill, uh, what are we leaving out that we should be talking well, about? Well, you know, I, I just think that you're... Uh, you're more than anyone probably the custodian, if you will, of his image, his legacy, yeah. and 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 is and I'm sure that people ask you this all the time, and it's and I, and I and it's hard to answer. But do you have a sense of what his legacy is? Oh gosh, yes. You know, I mean, his legacy—it's growing. Yeah, it seems to be. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and I, of course, am, am in the position of enhancing it, right? Not right. only protecting it, but but enhancing it, which is, which is, you know, I'm very proud to say that it's a, a mission I've taken with on with great zeal and passion and, and, and mission, if you will. But um, he, he has really cut through so much of the noise as to uh, be on that pedestal uh, as king of comedy. And, and, you know, from Whoopi, of course, um, uh, as, as, as a great comedian herself. Yeah a great actress you know how she feels about him and and his his legacy and and what he has what he how he now stands in the pantheon of greatness i mean he just does he stands there pretty much alone yeah I mean, there are satellites around you know we, we've got wonderful comedians around him um netflix is doing a hall of fame um 
uh, coming up uh, May 1st, uh, the Festival Comedy Festival Hall of Fame. And it's Richard, George Carlin, Richard, Robin, right. and, um, and uh, Joan Rivers. Right. And, um, you know, and that's great company. But, you know, I have to say, Richard is the centerpiece there. Sure. I, I mean, I know he is. Yeah. And, and I'm not just saying it, but, you know, I, I believe he is the centerpiece. But um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful legacy. And um, I think as time goes on, the the emphasis on the drugs and some of the violence and that kind of falls by the wayside. Not yeah. that we're trying to whitewash it, of course, not that we're trying to deny that it existed. And of course it existed, but that it's not, it wasn't who Richard was. I mean, Richard, you know, what, what's left is the genius of his work. Right, yeah. And, and the culture he changed. He changed culture. He did. He did. Huge impact. And, yeah. Huge and impact. I, I, yeah. yeah. And I'm so proud of of um, of him, and he's still very much alive. Yeah. Yeah, it's all true, Jennifer. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate your opening up in this wonderful way, and you're giving us your time today, and we are delighted and honored to be able to do a two piece podcast about Richard and about you and about this yes. whole. Fantastic. Context. And the ashes, we have to go back to Hana. Yes, that's right. Uh, you did distribute part of the ashes, I believe, yeah. in the yeah. sea at his house in Hana. And that's a beautiful spot and a sacred spot for Richard, and a safe yes. spot for Richard. Yes. So when you do that, let us know, please. Absolutely, we'll do that. Thank you so much, Tom. All right. Thank you, Bill. Yes. Thank you for being with us. This was great. I've enjoyed this.